If you have a Bible, Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read from verses 1 through um, 11 tonight, and then I will, and then I'll pray. So if you have a Bible, turn there. It's on the screen as well. If you do not, um, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. This is God's word. Let's pray one more time. Holy Spirit, have your way through my vocal cords and in the hearts of everyone who listens. I can speak to the ears, only you, can move into the heart, to like the core of who we are, and speak there. Speak truth to lies, speak clarity to deception, speak comfort to those who are in affliction, wake up those and arouse those who are so dead and asleep right now. Only you can do that. I can't do that through the, the, my my voice influx or a microphone, only you can do that. So would you do that now in Jesus' name? Amen. <clears throat> amen. Well, what is the, what is the be- basis, the pole star, the true north of any good relationship or any good community? One where there is preference and joy and being caught up in something bigger than any one person even a relationship where forgiveness is at the center, even when, when there's wrongdoing. In a word, the basis of any good relationship is partnership. Partnership is really what we're all after in any relationship that we enter into. But for the Christian community, partnership based on anything less than the gospel will not be able to hold together the diverse complex backgrounds and experiences we all bring to the Jesus community. We must have partnership in the gospel. And tonight, I'd like to look at Philippians 1 through 9, what we just read, and ask what it means that authentic community begins with partnership in the gospel. So what I'd like you to do tonight is I'd like you to hold in your mind a specific relationship or a friendship, or a marriage, or a community that you are in right now, and my hope is to show you that the aim of all of those relationships is ultimately and should ultimately be partnership. So tonight we'll look at partnership, what partnership is, how to keep it alive, and lastly, what partnership brings, what it is, how to keep it alive, and what it brings. So first, what is partnership? What partnership is? 
When we think of Christian community, we don't often think in terms of partnership. We usually think, when we talk about Christian community, we usually think in terms of relationships or friendships we have with people that go to the same church as us or that identify as Christian. Or for those who have been in the church a long time, we even use the word, and this is like an advanced word, right? Fellowship. I'm fellowshipping tonight. That's like insider language. But what we really mean is we're in relationship with people who are Christian. Therefore, it's fellowship. But for Paul, Christian community is really all about partnership, and specifically partnership in the gospel. And partnership should be the goal of all of our relationships. I read a short article or a blog. I don't really know the difference between a short article and a blog. Maybe they are the same thing. Anyways, it was about relationships versus partnerships. I thought this was actually quite good. It was by a gal named Lauren Martin. She says that anyone can be in a relationship. You can be in a relationship with one person who is in a relationship with three other people. Sad, but true. Relationships, she writes, are easy. And she was specifically talking about romantic relationships. Anyone can be in a relationship. Not everyone, she writes, can be a part of something completely and utterly dependent of itself. Not everyone can find something more stable than the people inside it. Not everyone can have a partnership. And she actually has some helpful distinctions between what a partnership is versus what a relationship is. And she says this, relationships are clouded. Partnerships are clear-cut. Relationships are volatile. Partnerships are stable. Relationships are emotional. Partnerships are about emotional integrity, meaning you show up with your honest self and you're able to show up with your honest self. My favorite, though, is when she says this. Relationships are about seeking pleasure. Partnerships are about seeking purpose. That's where it landed for me when she was writing this article. I mean, yes, that's it. She writes that relationships, especially romantic ones, tend to be all about pleasure. Pleasure in hopes of escaping some sort of pain, whether it's pain of loneliness or pain of rejection or pain of inadequacy. She says, like most choices we make seeking pleasure, pain in return is always much worse. But partnerships are no longer about pleasure. Partnerships are about stability. And I think this last point is kind of close to what the Apostle Paul is saying in Philippians. He writes that he thanks God every time he remembers the church in Philippi because of their partnership in the gospel. He doesn't say their relationship in the gospel or even their friendship in the gospel, but their partnership in the gospel. He's friends with Philippi. He's in relationship with the church in Philippi, but it's their partnership that he thanks God for. The word partnership in Greek is a very, if you grew up in church, this is a very common word. You probably know this word. It's a Greek word, koinonia. Now, you probably know songs about koinonia. You sang about it in kids' school or kids' church or whatever. Koinonia is typically translated in our Bibles as fellowship. That's where we get the word fellowship. And when we think of Christian fellowship, we have all these images of church potlucks and being a part of the same denomination or b- believing all the same seven th- same things about like seven-day creation or some other debatable topic in the Bible. In other words, most of us, when we think of Christian fellowship, we think about hanging out, spending time with people in church that are like us. Now, these might be good and edifying things, but it's not what Paul means by koinonia. The word means, koinonia, when he uses it here, it means to participate in something rather than to share something in common. Anyone can share something in common. We share the fact that we live in San Francisco or we go to the same church. That's easy. 
but to participate in something is closer to what this word means. And therefore, it's stronger than sharing in something, like sharing the same city or sharing the same church or same, sharing the same like understanding and appreciation of the same type of music. It means that we actually participate in something together. It's a word about purpose and action, not simply about pleasure of people who look like you or talk like you or even think like you. It's about something bigger than all of us and at the same time in its own powerful way, making us one at the same time. So what does Paul say that we participate in? He says, you and I participate in the gospel. Now, what does he mean when he says, you and I participate in the gospel? When, when we partner in the gospel, what does that mean? That we participate, that we participate in the gospel. He means, first off, he means that you yourselves, the church in Philippi, and us that read it later, we have been changed by the gospel ourselves. It doesn't mean that Christianity is your affiliation. It doesn't mean that Christianity is your family's religion or your nation's religion, even though that's not a thing. It means that you yourself have, been, have taken in the gospel and have been changed by the power of the gospel. You have par- personally participated in the gospel yourself. See, the church is always and should always be made up of people who have no business together if it were not for the gospel. No business at all. I want our church to be like that so bad. It's kind of not really like that. I mean, you look around, it, it's our church kind of like the same type of people. I, I want it to be more diverse than it is even today. I want it to be made up of people that like, I have no business knowing you or even liking you if it was not for the gospel. That's the kind of stuff I want to see happening, and that should be happening in the church. People dif- of different ethnicities, different political leanings, different music choices, different generations, all coming together And what we have in common is that we are people who have been radically changed by Jesus' gospel. And we've participated in the gospel, which makes us now partners in the gospel. Now, to show you how, what this looks like in Philippi, because we can read Philippians and go, oh yeah, Paul's writing, and they kind of just become this like church that we have no real like tangible contact with. Like who is Paul writing to? Who are these people that are in his church that that share in the gospel with him? That are, that, are they all different? Are they all the same? Well, turn to Acts chapter 16. If you have a Bible, turn to the left, Acts 16. We get to read, actually, in Acts, the start of this church. Paul was a prolific uh, church startup founder or church planter, however you want to say it. And uh, in the book of Acts is an account, the account of the early church, how the Holy Spirit began the church after Jesus. And Paul comes on the scene in a few chapters in, and he kind of like take the, the, the book of Acts becomes like his like traveling itinerary of all these places he went to preach the gospel. In Acts 16, we get the account of Philippians and how the church started in Philippi, the, 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 the church he's writing to in, in Philippians. I want to show you how it started and show you how the gospel works. We'll start in verse 9. This is how the church started. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel, the gospel to them. So the church starts with a vision from the Holy Spirit. Like Paul and his companions, Paul has a vision of the Spirit 
leading him to a man who's saying from Macedonia, come and help us. He tells the, 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 the people he's with, and they're like, the Spirit of God is leading us all the way to Macedonia to go and try to preach the gospel there. So they go to Macedonia. So this is what happens when they get there. Verse 11. From Toros, we went, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothra, whatever. And the next day we went on to, to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi. Here, this, is the, this is the church that he's writing to, the city. A Roman colony and a leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Okay, there's no church there yet at all. He just shows up there. On Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. The church starts. Paul goes to Philippi. The first thing Paul typically does on his missionary journeys is he goes to a synagogue. And in the synagogue, he meets fellow uh, followers of, of Yahweh. And he tells them that Yahweh's Messiah has come. His name is Jesus, who, who, was, who lived, died, um, was buried, and was resurrected, and now lives. And the Messiah is here. That's what he typically does. He goes to Philippi. There is no synagogue in Philippi. There's all kinds of leading theories on why there's not a, uh, a synagogue in Philippi. But the leading theory is that there were not 10 men, enough men. You need 10 men to have a synagogue. There was not enough men to have a synagogue. So women gathered by the river to pray. So Paul goes to look for a synagogue. There is not one. So he goes down to the river and he finds a group of women praying. So Paul goes up and starts to preach the gospel to these women. Lydia, who is a entrepreneurial fashion CEO, very wealthy, Asian lady that deals in purple cloth. She's a, she's a, fa- she's, she's a fashion entrepreneur. That's what she is. And she's very wealthy. She comes to faith in Christ and her whole household comes to faith in Christ, and she invites Paul in, and the church starts from her house. And she has a church out of her house. Okay, so that's the start of the church. It just started with a very wealthy, faithful, uh, entrepreneurial fashion CEO. Pretty rad. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 16. Once we were going to the place of prayer, and we met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the other authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Speaking of preaching the way of Jesus. The crowd joined the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. 
After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fashioned, and fastened the, their feet in the stocks. Okay, the next person to join the church at Philippi is a slave girl who was demon-possessed. The Holy Spirit could not choose someone more opposite to add to the church next than this, this girl, this slave girl who had a demon. Lydia was wealthy, in control, an intellectual businesswoman. This girl was impoverished, enslaved, and, is, and she was an exploited soul. Now, this story might sound strange because the slave girl is actually speaking the truth. She's following Paul and Silas around saying, these, servant, these are servants of the Most High God, and they, they, they'll show you the way to be saved. Now, that, that is true, but the way she was doing it, the spirit in which she was doing it was mocking, disruptive, and out of control. And the way the Holy Spirit goes after her is quite unique as well. Paul doesn't reason with this girl. He doesn't turn around and go, Let's just, could you calm down a little bit here? We're going to, um, can we have a conversation? Can we do some, can we, can, I, can we pray for you? Uh, let me show you in the Bible how you're supposed, like he doesn't counsel her. He doesn't pray for her. He doesn't do a Bible study with her. What he does, the, the, the way the spirit like starts to move through Paul is he turns around one day because he's so annoyed. He's like, by the power of the spirit, I rebuke you, Satan, and he exercises the spirit that rules her, and she becomes a follower of Jesus. She's instantly saved, and this is what, what always happens, she joins the church. So you have Lydia now as a part of the church, she comes into the house church, and now this former demoniac slave girl. Now, let's keep reading. Verse 25. Remember, they're in prison. They're in prison because this girl comes to faith in Christ and is and is delivered from the demon that was fortune-telling at the beginning. Verse 25, about midnight, they're in prison, after being beaten with rods, still bloody, still naked probably. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Wow. Not, call my lawyer, not, this is, un and it, it was unjust for, uh, Paul was a Roman citizen, and what they did to Paul was, was illegal. But Paul did not even, even like, go after his rights as a citizen of Rome right now, all he does with Silas is they're singing hymns to God in the middle of the night. And the other prisoners were listening to them. The other prisoners were like, what is going on here? Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and saw the prison doors open he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. If you're a prison guard, the, 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 the lives of the, of the prisoners that you have, if they escape, it's, it's your life or their life. If they get free, you die. They'll kill you, okay? So he knew for a second, all, all of the, the prisoners that I, were under my watch are gone. I'm gonna, I, that's a shame to, to my job and my, and my country. I'm going to kill myself, okay? So he's just about to kill himself. But Paul shouted, verse 28, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Our chains are gone, but we haven't left yet. We're still here. And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and he fell trembling before, before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. 
you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately, probably with the same water, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because they had become, he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release the, those men. The jailer told Paul, hey, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can go. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and that's illegal. And they threw us into prison. And now they want, us to, they want to get rid of us quietly? No. This is where Paul says, I'm going to appeal to my rights now. Let them come themselves and escort us out. I want to see them in the eyes. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and the sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Third person, third household to be added to the church. The next person to be added to the church is a, in Philippi is a blue-collar prison guard who works for the empire and is probably former Roman military. This is not the kind of guy you th- that hangs out with intellectual entrepreneurs like Lydia. He's not the kind of guy who hangs out with charismatics like the little girl who was just delivered from demons. This guy... This prison guard is like a dude, he's like a bro. He's like really into sports and hunting and he makes fun of guys who wear skinny jeans. He's this kind of guy who is so obedient to his job and country that he tried to kill himself when he thought he failed it. And Jesus adds him to the church in Philippi. There's a businesswoman, a former slave demoniac, and a military bro all in the same, they didn't go to different churches. They went to the same church. It wasn't like the guy went to the Baptist church because they still had like the American flag in the sanctuary. And the ex-slave went to the charismatic church because, you know, they're down with the demons or whatever. And the businesswoman went to like the Presbyterian church. I don't know why Presbyterian, I just feel like that's where they would go. They went to the same church, the same one. And so when Paul's writing that, you guys are in partnership in the gospel together. He's writing to a business, a very successful businesswoman, a, a, a former slave girl who had, who had a demon. At this point, it's probably 10, 15 years later. I don't know where she's at at this point, if she's, like, if she's still part. I mean, we assume she's still part of the church. What's gone on in her life? And then there's this like blue-collar bro guy, and they're all a part of the church. Are they different? Absolutely, they are so different. But Paul says they partner together because all of them have participated in the gospel themselves. This is what Paul means by we participate in the gospel. That we have, from all of our different places of brokenness, our, own, our different places of enslavement, our different places of lostness, our different places of weakness, of being so tied to our work that we would kill ourselves if something went wrong at our work, Whatever it is, we all come together under the saving grace of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And the way that we share in this gospel is actually very, very concrete and palpable. 
It's not the fact that, oh, we go to the same church together, we kind of know each other. We actually share in the gospel. And what Paul means by sharing in the gospel is sharing in the gospel's work. And he specifically means, what he actually means to Philippi, what he's saying to, to the church in Philippi, is that the church in Philippians, uh, in Philippi, sent him a generous financial gift. Look at Philippians 4.14. It's on the screen. Paul says, It was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except for you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So for Paul, partnership in the gospel or partnership in the Christian community isn't just about praying for each other, though that's a part of it. Partnership in the gospel means we meet each other's tangible needs. Like one another's physical needs, financial needs, that's what it means. Like without Without, almost like without boundaries. I know we're, we're really all about like setting up proper boundaries. The, go, the gospel's work do, like tears down boundaries. If you had boundaries, Gentiles should never be a part of Jesus's mission at all. The boundaries of Jews only, Jews only, not anymore. In Christ, like boundaries are broken down. The gospel's for everyone. We, we don't, when we start doing like, I, I'll meet your needs, but I have to like draw, draw these boundaries and whatever. Like that, that I know that it's like a very, a very like modern way of thinking about it, but the gospel kind of tears that down. And I think the gospel would, would challenge that because when we serve one another and meet each other's needs, it's like, I'm gonna meet your needs according to the riches of Christ Jesus. I think about all this, the missionaries that we have that go to our church that are in San Francisco working at kingdom-based nonprofits or here as missionaries doing the work of the gospel here. They need, and they're here because of the support of other people. If you know them, support them. And if you support them, by doing so, you and I partner in the gospel with them. So their work in the gospel becomes our work in the gospel. This is what Paul is saying. I am in prison for preaching the gospel, and you're meeting my needs. And I want to tell you, every people that I've, I'm, I'm, I'm ministering to in prison, because that's, that's where I'm at currently, some people have come to faith in Christ, and that's to your credit. Because you have been supporting me, therefore you get to share in this as well. You're partners in what I'm doing. When we support one another in our community with physical support, financial support, or otherwise, we are saying, I both believe in the gospel that through Christ's generosity I have life, and I believe that in the gospel's work through you, and I want to meet your needs as you continue to live out the gospel in San Francisco. So I want to support you as well. This is how the gospel works. And we're going to do that with one another. We ourselves become the kind of community, when we do this, we become ourselves the kind of community that proclaims the gospel by us sharing, by us giving, by us supporting. We become the kind of community that like, this is what it looks like when Jesus is Lord and not money and not stuff. Now, this might all sound nice, like, oh gosh, different people from different backgrounds, all kumbayaing and supporting each other materially and financially. Oh my gosh, this is so great. I wish, I wish this church was like that, this one here physically, and I, I do too. But what happens when that loses its luster? Where that gets, when that gets difficult? Or when that flat out just falls apart? How do you keep this kind of partnership alive over a long period of time? Next, how do you keep partnership alive? alive? How, how does it stay alive and sustainable over a long period of time? Like this. 
Paul says, verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Quite simply, it's a confidence in God that he's at work in those around you. You're going to hear this a thousand times in our year of authentic community, but Christian community is not easy. And staying focused on the gospel in the midst of a community that's, that's kind of always broken is not easy. So it's important that you keep in mind and in prayer that we are all broken. Every single one of us is broken. Every single one of us has a past and has a history that rears its ugly head at times and is like our past gets triggered sometimes and all this stuff comes up. And the way that we relate and the way we attach to other people, God is reshaping. All of us have that. And we are in need of a lot of grace. When we brought brought on the family of God, we need to look at each other and say, God is going to complete the work that he began in you. And the only way we can do that is when we realize that, that what Paul did, that by God's spirit, he who began a good work in them will complete it. He saw it. He saw the work that it began in Lydia. He saw the work that it began in, the, in this, this slave girl. He saw the work that began in this, like this ex-military prison guard. And he says, God's going to complete the work he began. I saw it. I was there. He's going to continue this work. And he's going to complete the work. A friend of mine tweeted this meme out uh, uh, this week. I think it's perfect because it fits into this thing here. It's a Simpson, so it makes it always better. Famous person mentioned God. Everyone cheers. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. One Christian says a thing you don't, you don't agree with, you disagree with, and you want to burn this person down. Now, I am really guilty of this. Like, Chance the Rapper was like, I'm in a Bible study. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. And then one of my, you know, Christian pastor friends tweet something stupid. I'm like, unfollow, mute, never again. I can't believe that we're, and I think that we do this for for a couple of reasons. We are pretty quick to judge one another in the church. Really quick to judge each other in the church. And I think the reason goes something like this. Let judgment start in the house of God. That's what the Bible says. Let judgment start in the house of God. So we're like, okay, let let it roll down. Judgment starting here. Or we say something like, well, Christians should know better. You have the Holy Spirit. You should know better than that. And I think there is a place to name sin and to hold one another accountable for sure. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. But the only way Christian partnership and the gospel endures, whether it's in a marriage, in a community group, in a church, in a friendship, is taking this truth in deep. That God is at work and he won't stop his work in other people. God is at work. And so when another brother or sister in Christ fails or says something you don't agree with, you say to yourself, first, before we like bring up all this like loving confrontation, which is so important, God is at work. He's not going to stop his work. How can God conspire with what they said to bring them into Christ-likeness? God, by his spirit, is always conspiring with our lives to complete his work. And we have to be confident in God's work in people, not their work in what God's working. Paul says, I'm confident in God's work. He says, I'm, not, I'm so confident in your Bible study. I'm so confident in your time with God. I'm so, he doesn't say that. He's not confident in that. He's confident in God's work in them. That's where the emphasis needs to be. I'm confident in God's work in you. Another thing that this teaches us when we're confident in God's work in other people in our lives is it teaches us that you can't save anyone. You can't save anyone. You can't Jesus alone saves, you don't. 
all you do is show up. And you must show up. You and I have to show up in each other's lives, but you are not the Messiah. Jesus is. You can't save people from ruining their lives. You can't save people from making all the wrong decisions. That is not your job. You can speak wisdom. You can speak truth in confrontational love. You can show up and be peace in the presence of Christ. You can't make people do things. That's not your job. That's God's job. God will complete the work. I love what the philosopher C.S. Lewis says about this in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, if we just got a glimpse of what God is doing in each individual soul, we would realize that there are no ordinary people. Everyone is turning into something, some glorious creature that if we were to see them in glory, we would be tempted to worship them. He says this, it's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and the most under, uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of those destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. All politics, y'all. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal. But it is the immortals whom we joke with, work with, Marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn, we must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taking each other seriously, no flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love, with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner, no mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parody, parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament of self-communion, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If we could just hold that in our mind, that we can, as we interact with each other, the gospel's work in each other's lives is that we're creating, we're like partnering with God and bringing the gospel to bear on every single heart that will ultimately turn into such a creature that we might be w tempted to worship it now. That is, that is, um, the, that should be like the driving desire in our community. But lastly, what is, what does partnership in the gospel bring when partnership is working well, when we're partners in the gospel with our, in our marriage or in our relationships or in our, in our family or in our church or in our community group, what does it bring? What is the telos of good partnership? What is the goal? What is the hope? What is the end? In a word, it's joy. And I know, thanks to Marie Kondo, it's like joy is on trend right now, okay? If you've ever seen like her like magical art of getting your ish together, whatever that is, like it's bringing joy back into pop culture. Now, let me just say this before, she, what she does is like the second gospel, I think. It's amazing, right? <laughs> Everyone should take care of your stuff, live minimally, stop being a hoarder, all that stuff, right? 
you should make all your roommates watch this thing. Like, everyone do the thing. Like, I bought into this thing a, a while ago when the book came out. Yes, all of it. But here's where I think it's off. I think it's off when it comes to joy. I don't think joy can be so self-centered as to hold an object in your hand to see if it's sparked or not. Because that still keeps joy with you at the center of it. It's all about you. And if you know anything about joy or have ever studied joy, joy doesn't come that way. Joy, though, is what we're all after. That's what she's tapping into. That's why it's so popular. We're all after joy. Like, oh my gosh, that's why. Because I'm cluttered. I need declutter and then I'm going to be joyful. That's not where joy comes from. Writer David Brooks says that we're all after joy. It's a thing we're all shooting for at the end of the day. And what is joy? He says, joy is moving in unison with other people. That is joy. He says that at every celebration, in every society, in every culture, when they are celebrating, they are doing rhythmic dance. Dancing around a fire, a drum circle, a synagogue hall, a church, a party. Movement with others, this is joy. When you are moving in unison with other people, this is the, the, like the, what joy feels like. Ash and I, our favorite thing on TV right now, and it's on in about, I don't know, an hour, World of Dance. I'm telling you right now, this thing is amazing. So <clears throat> when you watch World of Dance, it's like a, basically a dance competition on TV. And the solo dances are fine. They're, they're great. They're beautiful and they're strong. But group dance, there's nothing that can describe it other than pure joy when a group dances in unison and, and they do everything in and it's like the joy is contagious when they hit all their things and they're doing it. And, you, and the host, J-Lo and Derek Huff and like Neo, whatever, they, they palpably get up and they will jump on the desk or they'll run around. They're like, the joy, and I do the same thing at home. I'm like watching. I'll get on. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like I, it's contagious. That joy, when, when someone is in rhythmic dance together, you become a part of their joy. The f my favorite thing in the world at this moment, and I hope it's my favorite thing forever, is dancing with my new baby daughter, Juniper. And dancing, we dance, um, and like I'll hold her and I'll dance with her somewhat, but my favorite thing to do is I'll lay her on the bed, and you know, she wiggles, but I call it dancing. And she just like starts wiggling, and I'll put on a song, and she'll wiggle to the song, and I'll be over her, and I'm wiggling with her. I think I like it right now because we're at the same dance skill level, so I think that's like really, and she'll look at me in the eyes, and we'll just be dancing together, and there is no greater joy, like the joy's not even there. I can't even cry. It's so joyful. Those tears won't even come out because I'm just like, ah, I just want to eat her. I just want to literally put her in my mouth and eat her. This, that's joy when you're in rhythmic dance. I understand why, why animals eat their young, by the way. I get this. Now. Th but this is the, and we all know this is joy right here. Being in this sort of rhythmic relationship is joy. The second thing joy consists of is group movement and the pursuit of an ideal. Something that satisfies our moral yearning. Rabbi Wolf Kelman wrote this after marching with Martin Luther King in Selma. He wrote, we felt connected in song to the tr life transcendental, the ineffable. 
We felt triumph and celebration. We felt that things change for the good and nothing is congealed forever. That was warming, transcendental, spiritual experience. Meaning and purpose and mission were beyond exact words. Meaning was the feeling, the song, the moment of overwhelming spiritual fulfillment. The joy is a place where people meet. And, and to bring it all the way back to that first quote that we shared, meeting for a purpose. A purpose that's higher than each individual, something bigger than them both or them all. It's something, it's not centered around what sparks joy in me or in you. It doesn't even, it's way beyond that. It's joy in something that you know you're you're moving toward this like moral pole star in your life to make things right again. This meeting place is exactly what Paul writes in verse 4. He says, in all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel. I pray with joy when I think of you because of your partnership. Real partnership brings joy. That's rhythmic dance. That's doing something together. That's true partnership. Ash and I have experienced partnership on a level unspeakable since having our daughter. And joy, the joy is like palpable, almost too good to be true. We've known each other for 20-something years, and this is like, it's, there's something about, there's like this little life that's brought in, and us partnering together to raise this little life in Christ that's like bringing out the best of both of us at the same time that I never thought was even possible. And this, this, this doing this together every single time in my life where I've had the most joy, it's when I'm, I'm in syncopation with other people for the sake of the gospel. Every single time. There is no greater joy than when two, three, four, fifty, two thousand, three thousand people get it at the same time and they're like, we're on the same mission, purpose together. This is deep abiding joy. The book of Hebrews says in the Bible says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Now, if joy is unison with others, that joy that Jesus endured was not the cross. Jesus didn't like, I can't wait to get to the cross. He says it was the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. Joy was set before him that was like kind of beyond the cross. What was, the, what was that joy that was set before him that was not the cross? The fact that it led him to the cross or to endure the cross, what was that joy? I believe that joy was union. It was unison. It was bringing you and I in union with him, bringing us into what scholars call the best definition of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity, is the Trinitarian dance. The Trinity is the dance where they are preferring in unison with one another forever, and Jesus bringing us into this divine dance with God himself. The Spirit in us, us in the Spirit, caught up in partnership with God. What was that joy? It was that I, through what I'm doing on the cross, get to bring sons and daughters into this union that I've had, that we have, that we share, this dance, this unison for something greater than themselves. That was the joy. Now, before we close in prayer, I'd like to reflect on one last thing. And it is kind of how Paul opens this letter. He calls himself... I, Paul, and Timothy, slaves. I know our translation says servants, but literally it means slaves. Slaves to Christ. And 
he, taught, he tells the church in Philippi that they are saints. They're holy saints. Now, and here's the point. Everyone in the Jesus community is redefined by their relationship to God in Christ. Everyone. There are no mere mortals. If you've come to faith in Christ, you are, we are all servants, slaves of Christ. Christ, we are owned by Jesus and completely submissive to Him. And at the same time, we are saints. Everyone in this church community in your CG must be defined by their relationship and their status before God. That's how we must see one another. I know this is hard to grasp, especially when there's conflict and disagreements and unmet expectations, but trying to see one another like Christ sees us, makes a way for a community of grace where there's space to become what God says about us. There's actually room to breathe and become what God says about us. Remember, he who began a good work in you will complete it. Remember that in your dealings with one another. God is at work in people's lives. How do you partner with that ongoing gospel work? Let's be reminded of that as we pray. Would you stand with me as we pray?